During the recent lockdown, your At The Flicks team were honoured to get a chance to speak to first-time filmmaker Gary Jenks. Now, Gary is a retired teacher who originally came from South Africa. His aim with his film Chasing Mandela's Rainbow is to explore through three very different young people, has Nelson Mandela's education ideals been attained? Now, the three students are Pendolani, the high achiever, and Dili, a young girl who lives in the remote KwaZulu-Natal area, where resources are, shall we say, scarce, Mukletsi, who comes from Soweto. Each of these young characters are fascinating people who we will shortly talk about in detail with Gary. Before that, we set the scene with Gary, where we talk about the South African education system. Now, just a small warning, because of some of the facts we discuss, some listeners may find some of this initial discussion shocking and perhaps a little upsetting. Now, with that in mind, let's go over and talk to Gary. Hello and welcome to a very special interview from your At The Flicks team. And to be honest, this one we are really honoured to be hosting. Today, we're going to be talking to filmmaker Gary Jenks about his extraordinary and award-winning documentary, Chasing Mandela's Rainbow. Hi, Gary. How are you doing? Hi, is that Jeff? Yes, that's me. Hi, Jeff. Uh, thank you for having me on your, your fantastic programme. I'm, I'm the one that's honoured and, and privileged uh, to be on it. So, Chasing Mandela's Rainbow, we've all seen it. We've all been very impressed by it. Thank but you. Before we say a word on it, how would you describe the film for our listeners? So, it was a, a film that I made to describe the inequality of South African education initially. That was my first sort of motivation. Uh, I wanted to graphically depict what's going on in South Africa, my homelands, where I came from where I was born and lived for the first 32 years of my life, been here in England for the, the, the second half of my life, the, the next 32, I'm 64. And I want to do documents, not just the inequality in South African education, but the inequality in people's lives, the socioeconomic home backgrounds as well. So that's the second part of the reason I made this film was to document how different children's lives are in South Africa and how it affects their futures. And I wanted to tell the story through the lives, the very brave and determined lives of these three children in the film and compare and contrast their characters as well to show how one's personality, one's genetic makeup, one's character uh, affects one's future just as much as where you come from, your own parents, your background, and, and obviously the teachers and your, your school. So um, it was a comparison. It was also a kind of milestone to judge whether Mandela's vision of racial harmony and an attempt to forge a brotherhood between blacks and whites and Indians and, and mixed race people in South Africa in, in the Rainbow Nation, whether that had been realized or not, because the main pillar and, and the main constitutional means of achieving this, this great vision of a united South Africa was through providing education for everybody, universal education. So it was an attempt to judge whether 25 years later that vision had been realized. So before you started the film, and as you said, you wanted to document where Mandela's vision had got to, what was your initial thoughts before you even got into making the film? Did you think it had been, or you just wanted to clarify it for yourself? I've always wanted to be a filmmaker and make a film. 
I was kind of searching for a, a subject and I knew it was going to be about South Africa and I didn't know in what way or I also in the back of my mind or um, deep in my heart, I always wanted to pay tribute to my parents. So this is why this film was really inspired by my beloved parents, my late parents, Mickey and Rachel Jenks, who were very saintly, very good people. And I wanted to pay tribute to them because I was still grieving for the loss of them when they passed away. I found that the film was a way of dealing with that grief and because I was trying to pay tribute to both of them. It was a very positive and healing way for me to not only pay tribute to them, but to grieve, to come to terms with the, with the loss of such great and wonderful and kind parents. So I didn't have the footage, obviously, to make a film about my mom and dad. Uh, we have little, you know, uh, family f films that my uncle shot um, when we were on holiday and, and a, a lot of snapshots, but I didn't have the footage to make a documentary. My father was, for instance, a very famous businessman and golfer, and he went to Durban High where Pendulani went. So initially, I had a, a lecturer in a course I was doing at Exeter University, William Higby. He said that um, I should make a documentary about my father because I told him about him. I said, I just don't have the footage. So I was kind of stuck there. And then I realized that my father was a very modest man, and so was my mother, and they probably wouldn't have wanted me to you know, make a big deal about their lives because they mm. were so modest and humble. And when you pay respects to anybody, you should really do it when they're alive and publicly so that they know you're paying respects to them um, in front of a, you know, in a speech. That's how it should be done. That's how my father did it to his uh, brother-in-law, who was his surrogate father. My father lost my grandfather, his father, when he was nine years old. And the strange thing was that when I started making a film, uh, I knew I had to make a film at Durban High where my father was a, a pupil. And this incredibly uncanny, weird thing was Pendolani had also lost his father in tragic circumstances. And he was also nine years old, the exact same age. And I suddenly realized that Pendolani was as good a sportsman and probably maybe in the rugby world especially, even better than my father. And so I realized I had an opportunity to pay respects to my father's memory and his sporting achievements through Pendolani. And because they both grieved in exactly the same way, it's hard for me to, to talk about my father's grief at this point without um, getting emotional. Sorry. Uh, but, no, no, but, that's but okay. But Pendolani grieved very deeply for his father too being at such a young age, and there were bits that I didn't put in the film, but uh, his mother, uh, when she was interviewed, said that Pendulani tried to stop the, the gravediggers from burying his father because he, he didn't understand that he was dead. He just shouted at them saying, stop putting rocks on my father's body. They had to pull him away because he was so sad that his father was buried in, in the grounds. You know, there was just so much footage I had and at the same time, so much means of paying indirect tribute to my father because I knew he grieved as much as Pendulani did and was so grateful for the surrogate father figure Sid Bruce was. And Pendulani, I don't know if you noticed in the film, also had a surrogate father, and that was Scott Matthews, his rugby coach. Yes, uh, yes. And there were a few surrogate fathers and surrogate m mothers in a way, 
because he was a boarder. All the teachers that taught him absolutely doted on him, were devoted to him. You know, they really, really loved and respected Pendulani. And he had a character of such integrity. And I thought, oh, my goodness, this is such a goldmine. Not only is this kid destined to become maybe a springbok, you know, he's gold dust because of that, but because of his character is just unquestionably good and and kind and honourable. And I just thought this is the perfect way of paying tribute to my dad. Yeah, I was going to say, he's he's a natural leader. Yeah, absolutely. That comes out across really clearly in the in the film. You know, you you can see he was like not only physically head and shoulders above my, most of the kids, absolutely. but he was head and shoulders above them. He, he looked like a natural leader. And yeah, I thought his speech about we haven't done very well, but we've got to pick ourselves up and try harder. And I thought, yep. Yeah. He's a leader. Absolutely. You know, I wanted to do something for my country, you know, my homeland. I wanted to stay in South Africa um, when I met my wife, uh, who was an English lady, but she wanted to return to England. She wanted to be with her family. She felt it would be much safer to be in England. But I, I just felt that, I, you know, in the 32 years I'd been in England, that I hadn't done enough for my own country. Had I stayed, I would have contributed to the Rainbow Nation in a, in a, in a very direct way by teaching black and white kids in multiracial schools, which is what I passionately believed in. I always believed that, you know, races should mix together at school and that's the best way for them to, to grow together. And that's why I was, again, so happy to realize that Pendulani was the epitome of a new black leader that would lead South Africa in that direction, not just to a brotherhood of black and white and Indian and colored, but a position of great integrity. Um, Because in that speech you're referring to, where he's in the assembly, he speaks from his heart. He's not reading anything. He first says, I just want to apologize, you know, for our poor performance uh, in rugby. We'll go back to the drawing board and put it right. And I oh, so thought, that, that proves beyond a shadow of a doubt that he'll never be a leader because they never apologize <laughs> for anything, do they? Yeah. Well, <laughs> is, the, the, the thing is, you know, what makes a good leader? And, and that's part yes. of this film is, yeah. is, is a leader somebody who's honest and accountable and takes mm. responsibility for things that go wrong and, and doesn't scapegoat and blame other people? As you often find many leaders, most leaders won't yeah. take responsibility for things that go wrong. Like, um, like this blonde clown we got at the moment. Correct. And, yeah. and, no, and, no, you say blonde clown, you're going to have to be a bit clearer there. Which side of the Atlantic <laughs> are we talking about? Oh, yeah, yeah, fair okay. enough. <laughs> yeah. Yes, the thing is that in South Africa at the time I made this film, you had President Zuma, who was you know, stripping taxpayer of all uh, the wealth in the country, tax revenue, and he was using it to build a mansion. He was brazenly stealing from the state coffers. Ramaphosa has taken over now and he's trying to deal with that corruption. I wanted to do something for my country that held all this to account, that put the ANC into the witness box and said, you know, what are you doing with Mandela's vision? Why isn't it a country where black poor kids have got an equal opportunity to get a good education and prosper just like you know, not just rich white children, but rich black children and, you know, the few middle class black children that are getting good educations. Why can't it be spread to all children? And then I realized that it wasn't just a case of tackling the political corruption. The problem suddenly became very much more complex. I realized that it was a question of 
trying to educate the teachers of these children to provide that decent education at the very youngest age. The film was really, I really discovered through the film that it it wasn't just the corruption from on high. It was the fact that they couldn't implement the vision of Mandela because the teachers that are teaching in the majority of schools in the rural areas and the poor townships where you don't get, you know, decent education, where teachers aren't able to understand their subject properly and deliver it and, and, and teach it properly. They don't have the facilities either. It's not just because they are underfunded. Uh, they don't have libraries and they don't have laboratories and they don't have textbooks and, 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 and so on and so forth. They don't have proper classrooms. They haven't been trained properly. But not only have they not been trained properly, but they were taught in schools when they were in Bantu education. And this is a legacy from apartheid because the, the education that they received when they were in primary school and high school was so inadequate for, for blacks, unfortunately, that they weren't able to, even the ones that could understand what they were reading, they weren't able to properly understand how to convey an understanding of English and their own home languages in the written word. They could only teach them as they had been taught themselves. So they had been taught in a tradition of oral performance where children merely read for pronunciation only, and they don't read for meaning. And they not. So is that is that why there's such a? The one thing I did notice was there was such a focus on pronunciation and and reading the sentences correctly and and using you know where's the apostrophe? They keep mentioning that. Is that where that comes from? Because that puzzled me a bit. Those teachers aren't able to understand how you start to understand what a text means. Uh, they can't convey that at the same time as only teaching pronunciation because they are relying on how they were taught when they were kids. And they, yes. ha- they haven't moved beyond that. And worse, of course, is the fact that in maths and science, they were not even given an education at all. During apartheid, Bantu education only provided them with the humanities, English, geography, history, and Afrikaans, art, no sport because there weren't any sporting facilities whatsoever. So they got half an education and they were actually not allowed to teach maths and science. So when that teacher makes the mistakes that she does, in no, the which is shocking. Is she, shocking. She, her mental arithmetic, her, her times tables are inadequate because she was never given a grounding in, in her times tables when she was a kid because she didn't have maths or arithmetic education. And so that's why children can't learn properly. It's not just because they don't know how to teach them an understanding of what they, you know, the meaning of language and comprehending what they're reading, but they're not able to understand how to get onto very basic concepts like mental arithmetic because their mental arithmetic is so poor themselves because of the the legacy of apartheid. So I, I began to uncover all these very difficult problems and it's very difficult for it to go away if you've got an administration that is itself corrupt, that is only in, interested in feathering, you know, the people that work for the administration, the heads of departments and, and all their, you know, their minions, they're only interested in pushing pieces of paper to each other. And they're not really trying to get to grips with all the problems in their particular areas that they, they're supposed to be administering properly. 
And so they don't care that the teachers that are in the classroom are not able to teach. You can only rely on whoever is in front of you in the classroom to try and give them some education, but that can't be done because they haven't been trained properly either. They stripped the country of most of the teaching colleges. Instead, they forced them to go to universities, and the universities only gave them a theoretical understanding of education, the philosophy and the methodology of education, but they never actually gave them proper grounding in grammar or, you know, in, in, in the first three years in acquiring an understanding of the meaning of language. It is, it is absolutely it, fascinating. It is incredible. And, and what we've seen here is the structure around, you know, what you set out to do, what the limitations were in, in both the system and the teaching. But the heart of the film are the three children that are going through this education system. Now, what I'm interested in, why did you pick these three? And what were the different aspects were you trying to get out with these three? I went to five schools initially and filmed in, in five of them. And in the editing room, we had to take two out. But I initially didn't have an idea of how I was going to do this. Um, when I went out on my own, 2016, and I, I went to about eight schools. Um, I went to schools that I taught in when I was initially a teacher in South Africa. I got permission to go to Durban High. I just filmed in the classrooms and I came back with very rough material and I, I took it to investors and funders and said I, I wanted to compare different schools uh, in South Africa. Over and over again, I was told by producers, investors, and so on and so forth, this is too intellectual. You want a character-driven narrative to move an audience and to make them gripped with a struggle, you know, the heroic uh, struggle that they're going through and you want to build some kind of a you know not just a character driven story but a, a tension building story otherwise you're never going to get money to fund a film like this so i then engaged the eight schools and i started weeding out some myself because they just you know weren't appropriate the three schools i got i had a very good relationship with the headmasters that was durban high where my dad went and this afrikaans headmaster uh, was the headmaster there, Leon Erasmus. He, he's now a headmaster in Cape Town, in Durbanville. I had a very good relationship with him. And I said to him in an email, you know, can you pick out somebody from your cohort who can be filmed uh, next year? Um, I'm going to come out with a crew and do a character-driven study. And then I'll document Durban High at the same time. So he said, without a doubt, without a shadow of doubt, you've got to take Pendulani Butelezi. He's just been made the head boy. He's the captain of rugby. You won't get better. So I knew straight away. And I knew this guy had such a good judge of character because on the playing fields when I interviewed him, and I got a bit of that interview in the beginning of the film, he said, look, you, you can't just tolerate diversity, he said to me. You've got to embrace it. He said, these boys, and he turned around and he was referring to the kids playing behind him. He said, they will fight and die for each other. And I, I just knew, I, because I'd, I'd put the question to him, what is the diversity of your, you know, the mix uh, of your, your boys at, at Durban High? He said, well, there's about 50% blacks. He said, about 40% Indian and, and about 10% are white. He said, it's a good mix. It's the same demographic mix as we've got in Durban, roughly. 
he said, but, you know, and then he, he started speaking in a very inspirational way about diversity and embracing it. And, and I just thought for an Afrikaans headmaster who was teaching in an English, very British school to say these things, which was anathema to what, what an Afrikaner would, would have said in the apartheid oh, days. Oh, yes. The architect, oh, the architect. So he was the children of the architects and he was saying, you've got to put these kids together and they will love each other and they will fight and die for each other. And you'll build a country that is, we'll all be so proud of. And not only idealistically, right, but he did it when he was there at Durban High. These boys were absolutely devoted to everything he said. He had, they had so much respect for him. As you saw when he walked up into, you know, the assembly, you could drop a pin. It was so silent. They, and they all stood up. And he commended this basketball team in the most incredible way. And I just thought, oh, my God, this guy is, is the inspiration of Pendolani. He's got such integrity, too. And he extols the values of, of humility and good character and being a good sportsman and being modest. Uh, even though they dominated so well, they were modest, you know, in, in the way they had this unbeaten season. And you could see that he was a shining example of what he spoke about. So I had implicit trust in, in this man. And he, he chose Pendulani, and I, and I knew straight away that was a great choice. And then I spoke to the English teacher that I'd already met, uh, Linda Pepler Chambers, in, in Highlands North Boys High, Bachlatzi School in Johannesburg, uh, with a blue and white uniform. My old school. <laughs> so I was, I was comparing my, my education with my father's. Uh, I was going back to our old schools. In a strange way, I was comparing my character, which was a bit unruly and misbehaved, to my dad's, who was much, much more well-behaved and well-brought up. I spoke to Linda, and she said, I've got a boy for you that's also a very interesting study of you know a kid who's really struggling, and he's, he's going through a lot of family grief. He's just lost his father. And I just thought, ah, he has the link with Pendolani. I can compare the two because they've both lost their fathers. They're both struggling with that grief. And they've got difficult exams ahead of them, got struggles, especially Maklatsi uh, in poverty, to feed himself. You know, life is really tough. One of the things that struck me with that teacher as well is the passion in her I know. When, she, when she broke down because of I the burns on him. And I thought, again, another person with integrity. Exactly. Uh, and that's that was, in fact, I'm just looking at my notes that I made. I put the, the word father figures in inverted commas because some of them were women, but it was the quality of the mentoring. Exactly. And, and as you move down the social scale, and I'm using social scale for, as a shorthand for privilege, but yeah. as, as you went down the, the social scale, the mentoring got more loving, but less structured exactly and some of those kids exactly. needed structure and exactly i thought that you captured that brilliantly and i i just cannot believe that this is your first film but, well <laughs> uh, so that's another question yeah but, yeah sorry uh, i've gone off script no Jeff, no, but, no 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 <laughs> thank you very much for saying that and and um you, you're absolutely right. Uh, Maklatsi needed that structure. So it was so important because he was such a naughty little tyke. Um, oh, he and, was, yes. <laughs> and he, and, he was a gangster. And, yeah. and yeah. She, she was the one that could provide that. And so 
when we, we came to the, the thorny issue of him being a gambler and he gambling with, uh, in dog fights and, and betting dog on dogs. Unbelievable. And I just thought, oh, my goodness, you know, how can you do that? And I asked him, and he didn't seem to understand uh, the cruelty. And I think he misunderstood the word cruel. I thought, I thought he understood it to mean cool, C-O-O-L. <laughs> so, uh, you know, and I just thought, I oh, know he, he, he's got no conception of what he's doing. And that's because he's never had a strict father or a mother to stop him being, you know, uh, involved in th things like that. And as soon as I told Linda that he'd been doing this, she was absolutely horrified. She's a vegetarian. She's, you know, she feels <laughs> she's got her own dogs as well, and she loves animals. And so she told him in no uncertain terms straight away, if you do that, I'm going to take you to the police and I will have you charged, you know, for animal cruelty. He was immediately brought to book and stopped. And she was a very good discipline in his life. But she was fighting a kind of losing battle with him. We'll get into that a bit later on. But I just want to say that she was inspirational because she discovered that Mechlatsi was the very person we needed to examine because he's the one that comes from just as greater poverty as the rural areas, but it's his family background and the lack of a father and the lack of a moral grounding at home that, that is just as much to blame because she was providing a very good education for him. And so were some of the other teachers as well. I, you know, I the school. The, um, sorry, I, I, I love yes, the bit on. where they're teaching them uh, Romeo and Juliet. Correct. I thought that was priceless. Uh, Absolutely. You know, that is basically the start of Romeo and Juliet. Yes, yes. Fantastic. And they are related to that so well because she, she also had a very good understanding of how to engage them uh, on their level because they go through those kind of street battles themselves. And immediately they, they wanted to know more about it. What was so interesting was the fact that she knew that Mechlatsi was struggling with the same things that, you know, young boys all struggle with, relationships with girls and the infatuation they have. But in this case, Mechlatsi didn't really have a girlfriend or an infatuation with girls at this stage. He was more infatuated with making money and he, because he, yes. he, was, he was struggling so much in his his own circumstances, not just to provide himself with books or food when he went, you know, playing football, anything that he wanted, whether it was football boots, he knew the basis of that was money. He knew that, that if he didn't have money, he couldn't get anywhere in, in his immediate future. And he wanted to be a football player. And so he had to do, he just had to gamble. He didn't have enough money for, for lunch. She knew that he was never really going to achieve his potential as a scholar or as a, as a student at school because of that. And that's why she chose so well. But she knew that his character had the makings of a businessman too. She knew he had the tenacity, the, the kind of competitiveness and the agility of thinking and strategic thinking that you need as a businessman. But she knew that he was, he could go either way. He could be very dishonest and become a crook and a criminal, just like his father, or he, you know, become a very honest and reliable car salesman or something like that. And, and that's why she, <laughs> she, she thought it would be a, a, you know, an amazing study of, of his character to see which way he was going to go, even in that year. And then, with Andela, it was easy. I chose her because in the previous year, I'd gone to that Madidima primary school, the first school she was at, 
and she outshone all the others. She was so literate. She was so not just eloquent. She was so confident, and she I could see she had such strength of character herself, innate intelligence that the others didn't seem to have at all. And I just thought, you know, here's a girl that can at least be boldly be a character and stand out. And so when I asked Mrs. Dubé, who I, I got on very well with, because we had known the school ten years before. We, my my Chiselhurst and Sitcom Grammar School had provided charity uh, funds so that they could build up a suite of classrooms. We'd known each other for 10 years before this film. So I said, Mrs. Dubert, uh, should we go for Andilla? She said, yes, absolutely. Uh, that's the very girl I had in mind. The upshot of it was we had these three kids and we went in. We filmed in about March 2017, the, the first production. Then I went back to an editor and he said, Gary, you, you've got very good footage, but you haven't got a film. You haven't got a story. The characters are so undeveloped. You've got to spend weeks and weeks with them. You can't just go in and point a camera at a, at a, you know, at a kid in a classroom and come back and say, you've got a, you know, a story about them. I don't see a story at all. I don't see any developing of tension and climax. Um, I don't see any developments of a, you know, trying to overcome a series of hurdles to get to your goal. There's no end game here. There's no struggle. There's just an introduction. So go back and get me something that I can really work with. So I went back again with a different cameraman this time. I just had to try and save on the budget. So I was, in the beginning, I wasn't in the classroom. I was just saying to my cameraman and, and sound recorders, go in and film and, and you know, give them general guidelines. But I, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't pick out stuff to do. So I took over as sound recorders. I was able to direct a little bit more what to film, when to film it, and what angle to film it occasionally. Uh, I wouldn't interfere too much with Mark Chips, who was a very accomplished cameraman, turned out to be a, an absolute dream as a cameraman. Um, but, your, but your, it, film, your film work actually is brilliant, mm, I, I must good. admit. Thank yeah. you. Yeah. Uh, I mean, not, not only in the enclosed spaces, but also there is a beautiful scene of, of the young girl, Andila, walking with her aunt or was it her grandmother ah no that's well, the, as they walk up and then she climbs the tree yes and, that's and he just lets the he, the grandmother he just lets the camera roll and i absolutely. thought absolutely is she really going to climb that tree yeah. oh yeah she is and then you had her voice over and what she was talking about and i thought that was beautifully put together and then the drone shots so as sensitive well. yeah that, yeah yeah and yeah, i both thought cameramen were, were very very sensitive um yeah also yeah the drone work as well but the the, the thing was that it was the sensitivity of that, that camera work. You have to be, it's so hard to be invisible. Machlatsi couldn't quite take out of his head that he was being filmed. So he kept looking at the camera and I kept saying to Machlatsi, don't look at the camera. <laughs> Just forget play- we're here, please. He was and playing I was, up to I it to, a lot of the time. And he was well, playing up he? to it as well. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Um, and I, in, in the end, it was like a case of bribery. I, I said, look, I'm going to buy you a, a, a roast chicken, a full roast chicken, because, he, you know, he, he, he loved his roast chicken. So, but, but you're not getting it. If you one time you look at the camera, you know. But, but, but um, you, got, you got two incredible scenes with him. One was the washing of the dishes scene, yeah. which was just fantastic, which was a, a sort of a struggle of, of wills, really. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and then you had the bit in the kitchen absolutely, where his mother was laying down the law. You know, my heart went out to that woman, and I was thinking, oh, God, well, yeah. The whole thing was so nuanced and so ambivalent and so kind of slippery because yeah. your heart goes out to her. 
because she's fighting a losing battle with him. She knows he's probably going to fail because he's such a lazy tyke and he won't not only wash the dishes, you know, but he and help in the home. He won't listen to her, but he won't knuckle down and work. And she knew it. She has this heart to heart with him. But at the same time, she's aiding and abetting his gambling. So at the end, she bribes him into doing the wash dishwashing yep. and she says, I'll give you your pocket money. And he, yep. she knows that he's going to go and gamble with it. You know, she wouldn't discipline him properly as he needed to be. And at that age, you can't smack a kid, but you, you, no. you, you, the only way is to deny them privileges. So if they won't do what you're doing, then okay, you won't get your pocket money then. Yeah. And she was also fighting a losing battle, not because he was so strong willed, but because his grandparents were spoiling him. Didn't matter if she wouldn't give him pocket money because he would get it from his grandmother. He would do yeah, absolutely I'm- everything for him. And and I thought that was a nice parallel with, and here were people, there was this poor mother trying to lay down the law, trying to give him boundaries, trying to give him, you know, some sort of life lessons. And she she was failing with McClutzy. And then you go to the school where people who really cared about this kid who were trying to lay down rules and and trying to give them discipline, if you like, again, were, were struggling very hard because they just didn't have the time. And yeah, it was really quite challenging. And yet when you went to the, the other school with Pentelani, they had got the time. Yes. And, and of course, Pentelani was willing to listen, which, which helps a lot. Exactly. And, then, and then you go down to why the... Why was he the, so willing to listen? And why did he have such a respect for his teachers? Came from uh, the home. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. It came from his mother. His mother, yeah. he was absolutely would do anything for her. He had such love for his mother. She was more than a queen. Uh, he would he would do anything you know she she wanted. Uh, mm. They 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 had the most beautiful relationship, and he had the same relationship with his father. So and and all his siblings as well. They have such a happy family, and they listen to their mother. She is the matriarch figure. They'll all do anything for her. It's so different to the family that poor Machlatsi found himself in, and he's got this character to die for because he's grown up in such a well-disciplined, structured, and a kind and loving, truly Christian upbringing. You know, he, yeah. he got from from his mother, whose name is Loveness. L O V E N E S S Loveness. I think that's just one of her English names. She's got a, a Zulu that's name as well. Clues in the name. Yes, exactly. <laughs> that's right. Okay. So let's talk a bit about what they've been learning. And I really like the use of Shakespeare, the Hamlet and Romeo and Juliet we've already mentioned, and how they linked it to their experiences. What are your thoughts on that use of Shakespeare? Thanks for that question, Jeff, because I think that that for me was also pivotal in the whole film was the resemblance going on in in the stories and characters of Hamlet and Romeo and Juliet and in the sentiments and ideals expressed in the Wordsworth poem, The World is Too Much With Us, Mm. um, with resembling in a metaphorical way the lives of the, the children themselves. So I was trying to you know, shape the film through English literature and and give you a kind of universal sense that children have always been, or mankind have been struggling with these problems ever since the time, you know, we were in the Renaissance and even before that. And these are universal problems we're always going to struggle with. So if you look at Hamlet, but in the beginning of the Hamlet, I said to the English teacher, Peter, I'm not going to be in the classroom, just my cameraman. And uh, can you just start off with 
there's something rotten in the state of Denmark. I just want you to start <laughs> with that line. Mm. And, I, and I knew that that would make a kind Foreshadowing. of political, yes, and, and a kind of political <laughs> allegorical allusion to what yes. was going on in South Africa. Because uh, there's definitely something very rotten in, you know, in, yes. in not just in the political, but in the socioeconomic and, and, and in the educational departments as well. I wanted to just hint at that. So he did that. And then he went into his own analysis of a scene that they were dealing with. And the scene was so, it was just, ah, when I saw the rushes afterwards, I thought, yes, 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 he's got it. (laughs) Because basically he's dealing with three things there. He's dealing with the fact that Gertrude, the queen, uh, has had an adulterous relationship with Claudius. And and before he killed his brother, her husband, uh, Hamlet, the old Hamlet. And so you're dealing with adultery there. You're dealing with, uh, obviously, murder, murder and fratricide, killing of a brother, a regicide, killing of a king. And you're dealing with theft, the the theft of the crown jewels. You know, he's, he's stolen the crown jewels and made himself the king. And those are the three kind of vices that are the root of the evil in all corrupt countries in all over the world. It's not just in South Africa, but there's no, there's, there's, there's the so much, well. I mean, there's so <laughs> much theft going on behind the scenes and there's so much fraud and there's so much double dealing in relation to money, but not just misappropriation, but helping your business partners and the people that put you in, in positions of, of, of power and back you. Cronyism. Uh, you know, yeah, the yeah. cronyism, exactly. There's a lot of murder that's going on in South Africa and it was that lack of morality that causes the corruption in you know that they found themselves in in South Africa that I wanted to highlight through through Hamlet. Also, there was a, a very important way of showing how much Pendelani admired his father. Yes, um, and yes. and and I was always comparing him with. Mechlatsi, because Mechlatsi actually, when he grew up and he found his father in jail when he was a kid, he, he thought he was like an animal. He had no respect for his father. He was revolted by the fact that he was a criminal. But then when he came out and he was, he was shot and he was in a wheelchair, he, he, he felt very sorry for him and he tried to become, you know, a, a better son and, and establish a better relationship. And likewise, and, and they reestablished some kind of a relationship because he was buying him football boots and soccer balls. And and, and, and that kind of thing. They never had a, 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 a real sort of love between father and son. Whereas when Pendulani is asked the question, you know, how would you feel if your father was in that situation? How would you speak about him? And Pendulani says, I would do exactly the same as Hamlet. I would yes. see him as a god because he's, he would have, he's my father. And, and there, there, was, there was such a, an inherent respect and, and love and pride in, in what his father was and what his father had achieved. Uh, and that's an, an amazing story as well. So I, I got that from the Hamlet scene. But behind the scenes, I, I didn't have the, the time and my editor wouldn't really let me do it. I, I, I didn't want to force the issue. But the father was a self-taught engineer. He hadn't gone to university because as a black person in South Africa, you couldn't get an engineering degree. They weren't taught science. So he had to teach himself oh my goodness. civil engineering. So he changed from being a pineapple farmer because he couldn't make money from pineapples because the cost of, of transporting them to the markets in Johannesburg was exorbitant. So he gave that up and taught himself to be a civil engineer on his own. And he was he was a successful road builder. That really happened where you know Pendulani 
as a kid would watch his father and say, I'm going to be a, tell me, what do you do? And he would say, you know, you do this, this, and this. He's, I'm going to be like you one day. He needed to have that when he was young, that admiration for a father and wanting to, you know, make him a role model for, for his own future. That's why he, be, he became a civil engineer himself, or was becoming a civil engineer because he wants to do his, his father proud. He wants to, you know, uh, in his memory, do as well as he uh, as his father was as, as a civil engineer. He wants to live up to that ideal, and he's also got a passion for building roads like his father has, to building an infrastructure for you know the poor rural community he, he comes from. Stark contrast to, to poor old Mechlatsi, whose father was a gambler, who's now also become a gambler, t- now told he's stopped gambling. So I think he learned his lesson. And go on to, to the ramifications for the kids and the country uh, um, Etc. Later, but um, just to quickly to go to Romeo and Juliet, um, she talks about when when she's talking about the nurse and and the mother and the discussions they're having about Paris um, and and he's a rich man you should marry Paris. Yeah, you've got the nurse looking after Juliet because the mother doesn't want to have much to do with her own daughter, uh, and the nurse has become a surrogate mother, and she's instructing her to be a girl who's going to ma- marry for money instead of marrying the person you love. She would prefer her to marry Paris. And you've got this kind of agency of, of a, someone who's very close and, and trying to mold and, and you know, bring up the, the person in place of the mother, the, the surrogate mother. And the, the person saying that is Linda, and Linda is the surrogate mother of Mechlatsi because when he burns himself, She's the one that takes pity on him and she sees that he's terribly burnt and he's been playing rugby. She immediately dresses the wounds properly and puts cream on. She's Is the that, one that that's was not the um the whole the whole message of your film though. It's it's uh, there's a lot of surrogacy in the film itself. So you have the father figures as we've mentioned yes. before who are surrogates yes, for father. We've we've the teacher who's the surrogate for McClatsy and also the the young girl Andili. I mean, her mother is away in in Durban, I think, working to get money for the family. And the grandmother again is a surrogate for the mother, who should be. And and her Absolutely. father died. And it's Which just is typical of black kids. Yes, exactly. And yeah, and and she's been through this. You know, that young horrendous girl. trauma, horrendous start to her life with the, the um, crazy person trying to burn their house down and shoot them. And that's a, like. That's a, that's out of a film. That's not real life. That can't happen. And then you realize, oh, hang on a minute. Yes, this is actually these are the these the are the lawlessness kids that have to live of that. I know yeah. it's terrible. And the poor grandmother uh, was scarred for life emotionally and and physically. Even though she she is the most wonderful surrogate mother for for Andila, because she makes sure she does her homework and she will she'll do anything to to help her and and more than anything she's her emotional support because she loves Andila. she she'll never desert her she'll always be there with her even if she she dies not having food she she will be with her little granddaughter because she loves her so much however scarred she was you know from before there's a kind of uh, a loyalty and a tenacity in that grandmother that is just so wonderful. At the same time, she's so incapable of doing anything because she, she doesn't know how to grow food anymore. She just doesn't have the wherewithal uh, to, to, you know, to grow food for herself. But um, the thing with the trauma that Andilla went through, there's another surrogate mother 
Um, and only for a temporary period. And it's that Barbara woman, who's another yes. teacher at the school, that out of the kindness of her heart, she knows Andela is going to lose her position, won't be able to come back to school uh, because there'll be no one to care for her. And she won't have clothes and she, you know, she won't have food. So she immediately says, I'll look after you out of the kindness of her heart. It's that kindness um, within the, the black community that is just so touching because she takes her in and treats her like her own daughter into her own home. She's so afraid that anything will happen to her. You know, she's scared that when she leaves the house, she told me, boys roaming the place, you know, she's not sure whether poor little Antillo will be attacked and, and she'll fall pregnant, you know. There are so many pitfalls uh, in the rural areas and there's no accountability. The police don't track down criminals. And, and when I was there, the police actually came to see when I first interviewed her, when she was crying right in the beginning, what I was doing. And I had to explain to them because the mother wasn't sure who I was. So I, you know, I had a, I had, I had a little business card and, and explained what I was doing and they were satisfied. And then at the end, I said to the police, while we were doing those shots in the burnt out hut, I said, didn't you catch the guy who burnt down their hut, you know, who was this arsonist? He'd actually killed somebody in another hut before he came to Andela and the grandmother. And the little boy, too, who's who's been taken. She, Andela doesn't even know where, she, where the little boy's gone. Her that that brother, was incredibly sad, yeah, yes. It does, it is sad. She's heard nothing from him. Apparently, he's living with some other uh, relative somewhere else, and, and they just, you know, aren't able to communicate. But... The, the policeman said, "No, we 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 didn't uh, we we didn't find anybody, and that's what usually happens. It's hard to catch people." I said, "But wasn't there video of him drawing petrol at the at the garage at the petrol station?" No, they don't have CCTV there. I said, "And didn't you know? I mean, he had a burnt arm. Surely, you know, you can yeah. track a man with a burnt arm." They said, "No, he disappeared." And then he said to me, "Can I also have? I had these T-shirts." We're initially going to call the film Mandela's Sons and Daughters. And I had a T-shirt for Mandela, and I gave it to her. Uh, and, and he said, can I also have a T-shirt? I said, no, <laughs> because I don't have enough. And I, because I was so disgusted that he never caught this, this arsonist with a burnt arm who was, you know, walking around with a scarred arm. I became very cynical as well as idealistic. You know, I was, I was yeah. full of hope for South Africa. Just quickly going back to the Wordsworth poem. The Wordsworth poem was was an absolute gem, which I think she was very clever to pick out and might have been part of their prescribed poems that they had to cover. Also, a little bit out of context, you know, very different Wordsworth's romantic uh, thoughts about commercialism and, and materialism and how that destroys our souls and our, our spirituality. It's just so spellbinding. The world is too much with us getting and spending. We lay waste our powers. And and that says it all. And then and then in the middle of it, she didn't know it was going to happen either. A guy walks in who's been selling um, chocolate bars and yes. bunks half yeah. the lesson and she catches yeah. him out. And she suddenly turns the whole lesson into an examination of why he's out of the lesson. And she questions McClatsy, who justifies this truanting your lessons because you must put money in your pockets man and that was it that was why these kids are going to struggle to get a good education because they're fighting every day to stay alive what struck me with that sequence is he's then bragging about how much money he made gambling i'm I thinking know. in that group i wouldn't be doing that exactly no, exactly no. 
it was something, I suppose, that once you were a successful moneymaker, everyone kind of looked up to you and, and knew you were, you know, one of the rich kids because you, you, you could afford to buy things and they couldn't. In the midst of all this, you held up a counterfeit note, a hundred uh, rand note. And I, I suddenly swung around and, and there was this guy holding up a counterfeit note. So we, I said, we're not going to, sh- you know, um, show your face and, 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 and get you into trouble, but let's just see it. So he held it up and, and it was shown in the beginning of the film. But uh, yeah, the the use of, of literature was a way of trying to highlight how difficult these problems are to overcome because they've been with us since time immemorial and they're not going to go away very soon because we've got entrenched inequality and that socioeconomic inequality is the reason why we've got educational inequality. Um, What do the three children think of it? So, okay, um, the film hasn't really been well received in South Africa because it hasn't been screened or, or broadcast there yet. So it was going to be screened, and then the COVID pandemic, you know, put a stop to five of the street screenings. I've been fighting a losing battle with the SABC. Now, the SABC are a government organization. Once they watched my film, I'm sure eventually it took months and months and months to get them to watch it. And eventually they, they said Channel 3 in, on SABC is interested, which is the main national broadcast television but we, we, we're not sure whether there's going to be space and, and uh, we're not sure whether we can afford it because, you know, we're in financial difficulties. How much is it going to cost us? So I said, whatever you can afford. And I realized as soon as she put a question like that to me, I knew they just didn't have any money. And they're in as dire straits financially. Uh, they've been bailed out time and time again, like South African Airways has been as well. They've also financially bankrupt. And they're also bailed out from time to time by the government too. They don't have the funds to buy anything, can only make their own films really, and barely pay themselves. But the problem is that in South Africa, this film, I, I did it in a way that wasn't too hard hitting. So when Linda saw it, she said, I don't like it. I said, why, Linda? She said, because it's not hard hitting enough, because you should have really told the truth of how deplorable it is, how much corruption and you know mismanagement there is in the, in the education department is what she meant. She just said it's not hard hitting enough. Uh, but on, on the other hand, I knew that if I was ever going to have a chance, a squeak of a chance in, with the SABC, it it would have to do it in a very careful way that tried to pay tribute as well to the fact that Mandela rolled out education for everybody. And I'd have to say positive things about how, you know, um, South Africa had made progress. But at the same time, I'd have to show up what was going on through the lives of these kids and expose, you know, the, the neglect of, of education for poor black kids. I I just had to be truthful to that. And it was hard hitting enough, I thought. But um, the SABC wasn't going to, you know, put it on, not just because they couldn't afford it, but because they didn't want to expose their government because they were being paid by the government. Which is a real shame when you consider the success you've had with this film in film festivals. Yes, I know. My main reason why I made it was because I wanted to help my country, you know, find a way out of the mess it's, 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 it's in at the moment. Economically, the position is much, much worse now because of COVID. Never mind Black Lives Matter. You know, they they are struggling financially. They're in junk status. They've been downgraded to junk status by the rating agencies. 
grimly holding on to the rand at, at the level it is at the moment. It's sunk to a very low level. The government is bankrupt and investors are very cautious about investing. So they can't show a huge neglect of the children of their own country if the the investment coming is going to be mismanaged. And so they can't, I guess it's it's a case of, you know, wanting to protect and their reputation of, of their government and their, their governance. So it's, 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 it's an impossible conundrum. How, how do you help a country which doesn't want to expose itself um, to honesty and, and, and scrutiny? You, you can't because they're too afraid of that scrutiny and they're too afraid that, the little investment they're getting will dry up altogether. This may please you. We have a lot of listeners in South Africa. It is one of our top-rated sort of uh, countries for downloads. So... And I imagine that we're going to get a lot of correspondence now from them and (laughs) and from our UK and US listeners uh, to say, this sounds brilliant, and it is, trust me, it is. How can we get to see it? So it can be seen at the moment on Vimeo On Demand. I brought down the, the price. It's only about £1.50 uh, to, to watch, to rent it for, for 48 hours, or you can buy the film £15, pounds, um, and then you've got it for life. I'm going to get it screened in cinemas that I've got contacts with. I've got contacts with New Metro, the Labia in Cape Town, New Metro in Durban and Peter Maritzburg. And it's called The Bioscope. It's a small little art house film in Johannesburg where my mother was born, <laughs> just near Dornfontein. My mother was a nursery teacher, and I wanted to pay tribute to my mom in, in the way a lot of the, the female teachers were, were able to look after Andela. Uh, and, and so her first teacher uh, absolutely loved Andela. Uh, so did her headmistress, Mrs. Dubé. They had the same love and devotion that my mother had for the little nursery school children she had. Even when Pendulani was in high school at Durban High, you know, his chemistry teacher, uh, Michelle Giroda. Um, oh, she, I liked her. I she thought was she was amazing. I thought she, could, she was great. Absolutely, because she, she could tease him in the nicest possible way yes. and she could toughen him up, you know, in the, in a way. If you want to be a leader, you've got to take, you know, a, yes. a little bit of, uh, teasing and you've got to pull up your socks mate because you've got exams around the corner and she was a a force for reality because he was just wanting to play his rugby he was you know um, but at the same time he 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 knew that she would always help him out again that you know surrogacy which was so important in his life and I know my mother was always like that too with the little one she she looked after but um uh, yeah, so it, it will be screens at these different venues in South Africa, um, maybe next year. Uh, hopefully, once it gets a little bit of a, a screening uh, in the cinemas, I'll be able to maybe say to the SABC, look, you know, if if, if you can't afford it, you can have it for nothing. Uh, but it, it can only do uh, South Africa a power of good because it will make the people that are, are positions of responsibility take take the you know the, the lives of, of rural kids who are being forgotten and neglected uh, into much more consideration and not just providing them with better you know infrastructure proper toilet facilities for goodness sake but also with first class teaching like you can get in an urban school even in the townships now i mean if you're able to get good teaching like mcclatsy got and and you can get good teaching like that in the townships you know it's a case of giving the, the rural kids a chance as well i think 
it will slowly get there. You know, it's, it's just a case of being more patient. It, it can't, you know, Rome wasn't built in a day. So it'll take many, many years um, and maybe generations to improve education and address the, the, the poverty and, and inequality in, in people's home lives as well. There's a lot of goodwill in South Africa. There's a lot of very good-hearted, philanthropic, charitable good work that's going on there. And that's what I want to use my film. If it's not going to be a, a box office hit or a you know, financial success, at least I can use it as a kind of context and a framework, and I can begin to do some sort of help with a, with a sort of social innovation and young enterprise projects that are beginning to blossom all over Cape Town and Johannesburg. But that's, a, that's another subject. Um, but there, there are many, many projects that are, are, you know, helping unemployed kids that are coming out of school without an education to, to be more employable and to have not just leadership skills, but business skills and enterprise skills and to start their own businesses. I think what was so important in the film was the economics teacher Pendelani had. She was saying the government would help business once parents were able to derive money from an income from business, they could then send their children to better schools. And business does have a very big role to play, and, and small businesses especially, in the lives of poor people, because they were all listening so keenly to what she was saying. They were riveted because they knew she's got the answer. Because we privileged to come to Durban High, but we know so many kids that can't. And it's a matter of their parents or one day they themselves becoming businessmen and women and sending their, their children to better schools. So um, what we will do to help is we'll put a link in our show notes for any of you listening to this, go there, and that will link you in to where you can purchase or rent the film from. Great. So I've got one final question then. Thanks. What do the three protagonists think of the finished film? Yes, so... Pendelani keeps on, you know, I've got a WhatsApp connection with him. He plays for Sharks. And last night I sent him a message. I said, look, can you get some maths and, and science books to Andila? You know, she's near near you. And he said, unfortunately, during lockdown, I might not be able to because I'm not allowed to travel such distances. But after that, I, I'll do anything I can to help. Then I said, and by the way, you know, we got into the 20th Film Festival and blah, blah, blah. And he said, oh, that, you're, you've done so well. He's just so full of praise for the film. It's always full of praise for the film and me. He never says anything about his achievements, but it's his achievements that has you know, propelled the film into to being something that is really watchable because he is, is such a charismatic and, and inspirational kid to have in your film. He was, the you know, leader. one of the... Yeah, he is definitely the future of South Africa. And the last thing I want to tell you is all his um, his uh, teachers were saying, we, we really hope and pray he's going to become the, the next president or, you know, a future president of South Africa. He's, he's, he's another Mandela. And these are like old wise, you know, teachers that have been teaching kids for 30, 40, 50 years, some of them. They, they were just so bowled over by this kid. But um, so he he's full of admiration and, and, and so on. He was going to come to a, one of the screenings in Durban and I was going to give him a little presentation. And Dilla was too embarrassed to come because she was just too shy. Um, so I said, well, will you go to Maritzburg College, which is a very old British school in, in Peter Maritzburg? And she said, okay, I'll, I'll go there. But when I told her that people were crying because of her um, in, 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 in Canada and Toronto, it was shown at the Toronto South African Film Festival. And they 
had an audience of about 300 people. And one of the ladies, Sandra Duncan, I think her name was, sent a hundred Canadian dollars to Angela. She said, I, I just brought me to tears. My, my editor also gave a hundred pounds. She was in tears. My cameraman, Mark Chips's wife, she was in tears all about Adela. And I told Adela and she said, Oh, I'm over the moon. <laughs> she was absolutely ecstatic. She thought, how can it be that I'm now, you know, being shown in, in cinemas all over the world and people are crying about me? She she didn't say that, but she's she can't express her surprise and her happiness more than by saying I'm absolutely over the moon. <laughs> so she's delighted. She's um, still struggling in lockdown now. She's not at school. Uh, she hasn't been at school for quite a, many months, so she's missing a lot of important education. She's got all the way through to year 10. She still wants to be a doctor, and I, I want to get her some extra lessons. So we've got her a little a mobile phone, and she can download onto her mobile phone lessons in maths and science. She's very positive. Mechlatsi I haven't heard from, unfortunately. Oh, um, uh, because I think he was a bit embarrassed about what had happened, you know, not just him failing, but he realized he, he shouldn't have been gambling and, and he, and that, that helped him turn around. So he, at least he, you know, the following year he passed and then he passed the next year. So he's now in, in final year matric, uh, year 12, it is in South Africa, A level. And fortunately, again, he's, you know, he's, he's had to stay away, but he's back at school already. His mother tells me, uh, dedicated and he's he's given up gambling and, and he's not playing so much soccer and he's going to you know try his very best to pass and so, so I just hope he will. I think you know you only live and learn um, and as a filmmaker you you have to be very careful you know when you make films about people that you you don't damage their lives in any way and you know I don't know that's a question I I still haven't answered. Do you think do you think I have a, a legitimate uh, reason to to show a film like that? I yeah, suppose. my my take on it, Gary, is without you stepping in and and filming everything and and showing his life, where would he be on gambling now? Mm. Exactly. No, I, I hope I hope that's true. Yeah. I think you're right. Yeah, yeah. I think people Definitely. all understand that eventually what, that you were doing what you were doing is right. Definitely. I Thank mean, you. my view is you were just you're just shining a light on what's there already. Exactly. Can't do more than that. Yeah, I mean, that's the nature of documentary, isn't it? You're yeah. meant to stand back and just film and let the... Yeah. I liked this film a lot. I mean, and I think it did the real documentary thing. It made me laugh. It made me cry. It also made me want to punch some people. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, yeah. yes, you know and that's what documentaries... Is. They sh- you should get emotionally engaged. And uh, and now, of course, I now because I've got more information from you, I feel guilty because the person I wanted to punch, they're a product. It was the the maths teacher. Yes, the, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, and now I, I understand agree. that oh, she's a victim as well because yes, she exactly. wasn't educated. And then and that's the role of of documentaries is just yeah. to wake you up and say, look, over here in South Africa, these things are happening. Yeah, and yeah. it's yeah, statistics at the end. Yeah, they were yeah. very yeah, hard yeah. hitting. And I mean, the be- the best line of the whole thing for me was when the teacher described Wordsworth as the hippie of his generation. <laughs> <laughs> I hadn't yes, thought I about that. that. I hadn't <laughs> thought about that. Yeah, that's yeah, yeah, that's quite yeah, good, yeah. yeah, I love that. Yeah, I know. And I mean, she started off her lesson. Okay, boys, let's rock and roll. <laughs> oh yeah, exactly. Yes. <laughs> I thought, oi, oi, oi. Yeah. I mean. One one thing about our show is we frequently, if not 
pretty much always disagree. There'll always be one of us that doesn't like something. All oh, I wonder who that is, Jeff. Jeff. No, it's usually yes. me. <laughs> but all three of us really enjoyed mm-hmm. uh, yeah, got something you. out of this Thanks, documentary. Guys. I really so, appreciate so it. Thank you very much indeed. Thank you. And, for, um, as for I said, we, we will put a link in our show notes. And it's been an absolute pleasure talking to you. You know, I wish you every success with what you're doing with this film. And would definitely like to catch up with you in a couple of months, if that's okay, just to see how it's going. Yes, definitely. And and thanks so much, guys, for interviewing me no and, uh, and providing this podcast for everyone else. And, uh, uh, yeah, we, let's talk as uh, in the future. Uh, any other project you, you, you want me to, to help you with, I'm always available. That would be brilliant. brilliant. Um, and we will keep you informed of feedback that we get. Yep. Yes, definitely. Thank you very much for that, too. And, and I look forward to hearing from you in, in the future. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. To make sure you never miss an episode of this podcast, please subscribe to At The Flicks at our website, attheflicks.uk. And if possible, please remember to rate and review At The Flicks wherever you get your podcasts. You can contact the team on Twitter or by email. Our contact details are also on our website, attheflicks.uk. Thanks for listening.